Uh, last Sunday, we looked at the conversation between God and Satan in Job chapter 1, verses 6 through 11, where God presents Job as a one-of-a-kind, blameless and upright man whom Satan can test to find out what drives his piety, his devotion to God, his commitment to God, what is behind that. Now, God had made clear to Satan that Job's piety is driven by conscience, a genuine love for God. But Satan disagreed and said that it's driven by convenience, a love for God's blessings and nothing more. In other words, Satan charged God with God having to buy Job's affection, devotion, piety. I'm not sure how Satan is still alive. If I'm God and Satan suggests that, he's gone. But then again, there are purposes that he has to fulfill that play into God's will long term, right? But God is just incredibly patient. But he's, he knows exactly what he's doing. In any case... Satan then suggested the removal of Job's blessings to find out the truth about his piety, which I think is pretty logical. Makes sense, right? If you want to know where someone's at in their religion, just take away the things that they are seemingly clinging to, and when those things are gone and they give up their religion, well, there you go. If Job curses God after losing everything, right, then his piety will be exposed as false, and Satan's theory will be true. If Job continues to worship God after losing everything, his piety will be exposed as true, and God's word will be vindicated. And all creation will see that God is worthy to be worshipped for who He is, not for what He gives. God agreed to these terms and gave Satan permission to go ahead and test Job. But He added a stipulation No harm could come to Job's person at this point. Satan then went out from the presence of the Lord. In the next section, we will look at Satan's first assault. This is the title of this message. Please take your Bibles and turn to Job. We will be again in chapter 1. We will be looking at verses 13 through 22. Once again, Job chapter 1, verses 13 to 22. That will be our text for this morning. I'd like to pray for God's help before we get to work. Father, we humble ourselves and come before you now and ask for your help. We ask that you send help in and through the Holy Spirit who would come and manifest himself here today with us and he would open our eyes to the word, open our ears to the word, open our hearts to the word. May the church be encouraged this morning as we study your word. And may those who have yet to know you come to know you in a saving way. May you move in power and regenerate and save them. Uh, Teach us from your word today. We submit ourselves to you now. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we can go ahead and pick up where we left off last week, and that would be at verse 13. Verse 13. Here is what the author says next. Remember, Satan Satan has left the building, so to speak. He has left the throne of God, probably descending to earth at this point. And here's what is said next, verse 13. Now, there was a day when his son, speaking of Job, when Job's sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. 
What we see here is the setting. This is the setting. This was a, a, a normal, regular day that Satan makes his first assault against Job, thus causing him to lose everything. It was on a normal, regular old day. Kind of reminds me a little bit of September 11, 2001. Started out like any other day. I don't know where you were at that time, but I was working at Home Depot, uh, which was one of the worst jobs of my entire life. Not because it's Home Depot, but because it's Home Depot. <laughs> it was horrible, but I remember people yelling and screaming in the break room and then running into the break room with a television on and showing that first building hit. But this was a normal, regular day, right? 9-11 was a normal, regular day, and that's what's happening in this text. It was a normal, regular day. On 9-11, New York City was already bustling with activity that morning. You know, people were moving to and fro. They were going to work. The guys, that the street vendors were opening up and starting to serve people on their way to Wall Street and these other places. I mean, it was just a normal, regular day. You could hear the honks and the screams and the expletives coming from people on the street. It was a normal, regular day in New York City. And then, American Airlines Flight 11 came blazing across the city skyline and suddenly crashed into the North Tower, World Trade Center 1. And that was at 8.46 a.m. And I think that we would all agree that from that point forward, just about everything changed. On the, this normal day, like 9-11 for Job on this normal day, or it was on a normal day like this, like 9-11, that, that Job literally lost everything. And on this regular normal day, at the time that this begins to happen, his children were gathered together at his oldest son's home for a celebration. And we were told about these little get-togethers, these little family get-togethers back in verse 4. That's why we were told about them then. We had to establish some kind of context, and his children would come together several times a year and just have a party and, you know, reflect on God's goodness and celebrate maybe a birthday and these sorts of things. They were much like us. They were very, very close. They all got along. And I think it was probably his oldest son's birthday. And while gathered together, they were eating and, and drinking wine, which was totally customary, not abnormal and I think that they were, going to, they were just celebrating God's goodness. And Job was not with his children at this time. So this is the setting. It was a normal day like 9-11. It's on a normal day that, um, I will say this, and I don't mean to, to, to use a cuss word here, but this is the day, Lawson called it, where all hell broke loose for Job. Like 9-11. Nobody expected that. Job did not expect this. Everything was normal. He was at home. He was running his estate, running his business. His children were doing their things and, and having their little celebrations. It was a normal day, as normal as today. You got up, hopefully you showered, uh, you did your hair, you put on deodorant, these things, you put on clothes, you drove down to RHC. That's a pretty normal Sunday, amen? And isn't it on these normal days where we're not expecting anything like this that these kinds of things happen? So it was just a normal, regular day. That's the setting here. Nothing extraordinary going on, just a regular day. Now we can move to 14 and 15. And this, this is where it, it just gets crazy. And it says, And there came a messenger to Job 
and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys were feeding beside them. And the Sabaeans fell upon them and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. I don't know about you, but at this point I shut the door and say, we don't need any. This is, this is what you wake up to, or maybe it's noon or afternoon, but this is, this is what happens. Job's at his house, he's chilling, and then this guy comes in and tells him this. You know what I think Job was doing? I think he was, he was home, we're not told, but I think he was home, and I think he was relaxing and perhaps maybe quietly rejoicing in the harmonious family that God had given him. Right? His kids were together on this day doing their thing, showing that they get along. I mean, I think Job was just relaxing and, and rejoicing. And then all of a sudden, this messenger comes out of nowhere. This servant of his comes out of nowhere. And he's on Job's doorstep. And he tells Job that he is the lone survivor of what, we'll, what we would actually call a deadly terrorist attack. Carried out by these Sabians. Well, these Sabians or Sabians were probably nomads from Sheba and were descendants of Abraham and Keturah, Genesis 25, 1 through 3. Later in Job, the Sabians are called traveling merchants, chapter 6, verse 19 of Job, but it's only phrased that way in the NIV. So these Sabians were traveling merchants. They sound a bit like the Midianites who took Joseph in out of the pit. References to Sheba and the Sabians are found throughout the Old Testament. You can see them in Psalm 72, verse 10 and verse 15, Jeremiah chapter 6, verse 20, Joel chapter 3, verse 8. They are mentioned. The Sabians eventually settled in the southernmost part of the Arabian Peninsula, and one commentator that I was reading called the Sabians pirates. Not the cool pirates of the Caribbean, kind of cool, fun pirates. These were like land pirates. And if you know anything about true pirating, pirates would just, they were nomadic and would roam to and fro, and they would attack anything and everything they saw and take, take the booty and slay the people. These Sabians were literal ancient pirates but they worked from the ground, not from the sea. While Job's oxen were plowing his fields and his donkeys were feeding beside them, the Sabians launched a full-scale attack. They burst onto Job's fields with swords in hand. They killed all of his servants except for this one guy who's given the report. They rustled his livestock and they left the scene in haste. This was a, a, a terrorist strike, like a, like a car bomb. It just happened suddenly, and then, and then when the smoke cleared, there was nothing but rubble. And the rubble in this case is no cattle and a lot of dead servants. And I'm thinking, well, how many servants and, and cattle were slayed here? Well, we already know there was 500 yoke of oxen. That's 1,000 oxen. There were 500 female donkeys. That's a lot of animals that were killed here. Now, if these oxen were all being put to use... It takes one man to run a yoke of oxen. If all 500 yoke of oxen were working, you have 500 servants, less one. 499 people slaughtered. 
I don't know if that's true, but it could be. Christopher Ashe wrote, it was an unexpected, violent, sudden, and terrifyingly destructive terrorist attack as terrible in its violence and bloodshed as a car bomb or a suicide bomber today. And in the midst of all this bloody, sword-flying chaos, one servant, just one, manages to slip away. And he's the one who becomes the faithful messenger who goes all the way to Job's estate house and delivers this shocking and sad news. You think about it, in a matter of minutes here, about one-third one third of Job's prosperity had been violently removed. One-third. Thousand ox, 500 female donkeys, and many trusted, hardworking servants. The fact that his oxen were plowing at this time gives us some insight as to what time of year this was. It was probably early winter. They were preparing the fields after harvest to sow the seed for the next harvest, and that happens at the beginning of winter. And yet before the messenger could actually finish his terrible report, he's still describing it now to Job, and before Job could respond or say a single word, another messenger arrives on the doorstep. Bam, one after the other. Now we can move to verse 16. While he was yet speaking, that's the first messenger, there came another and said, the fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them, and I alone have escaped to tell you. Oh, man. This is where Job wishes he was at his local Starbucks having a coffee where nobody could come find him. You know, the coffee shop then would have been called Hebrews. <laughs> Stupid joke. There weren't Hebrews yet. The second, this second messenger interrupts the first messenger. The other guy's still talking. Hey, they took the sheep. They, uh, not, not the sheep, they, they killed your oxen, or they took your oxen, and then they, and they took the donkeys, and they killed your servants. He's still talking. He's still describing them. And this other guy just shows up, and he tells Job that the fire of God fell from heaven and consumed all his sheep and killed all the shepherds that were there caring for the sheep, except for one, the guy who's talking here. What is the fire of God? That's an interesting phrase, right? The fire of God. Now it sounds like God is blasting Job. Well, I thought it was Satan that's blasting Job. Well, it is. But what is the fire of God? Well, that was an ancient phrase that the ancients used to describe lightning. This is lightning. Lightning. The fire of God means lightning. The ancients also called lightning fire from heaven. 2 Kings 1.10, 1 Chronicles 21.26, 2 Chronicles 7.11, or 7.1, I should say. So we're talking about lightning here. The fire of God is lightning. The fire from heaven, as it's said in Scripture, is lightning. This is a uh, lightning storm or something of that nature. The uh, Australian... Mega church band Hillsong United wrote a song called Fire Fall Down. And the, the chorus goes, Your fire fall down, your fire fall down on us we pray. 
they are basically asking God to strike them with lightning in their song. Now, they could be referencing Acts 1, Acts 2, somewhere in there, the day of Pentecost, the idea of fiery tongues. I don't know what they're actually singing about there, but it sounds to me like they're asking God to strike them with lightning bolts. And I don't know about you, but that just seems very unsafe. And they say this over and over in the song. Just bizarre thing to call on God to do. We do not want God to strike us with lightning. According to the National Weather Service, only 10% of lightning strike victims are actually killed. You might think, well, wow, that's a pretty low number. I think I'll go out and grab a rod during the next lightning storm and stand on my roof. I wouldn't suggest doing that. Now, here's the deal, though. Only 10% are killed, but the other 90% are maimed for life, injured. They suffer uh, from various maladies the rest of their life. If you've ever seen The Great Outdoors, one guy had a skunk hairdo after he got struck by lightning several times. Remember that? Oh, he's got the hair. In verse 16, only one person escaped the lightning strike or lightning storm here, the second messenger. And I, I'm thinking that when he shows up on Job's doorstep, his tunic is smoldering. Mm-hmm. Now, here's what makes lightning so incredibly dangerous. Obviously, a direct strike is, is very dangerous. But it's not so much as the lightning that's so dangerous. It's the fire that follows the lightning. What do fires do? They consume everything, just about everything in their path. Notice how this messenger told Job that his sheep and shepherds had been consumed. Lightning doesn't consume. It just starts fires. The fires consume. So, it looks like, to me... Lightning struck the ground where these shepherds and sheep were, which caused a major brush fire, and that was a dry region, still is, which consumed Job's sheep and the shepherds, all but one. In other words, all these sheep and all the shepherds but one were burned alive. Burned alive, which I think would probably be the worst way to go. They were all burned alive. In a matter of minutes... Another third of Job's prosperity was removed. He lost 7,000 sheep and many trusted, hardworking shepherds. Verses 16 and 19 show that the ruler, and I would say appointed ruler, the appointed ruler of this world, Satan, is sometimes granted the ability to direct certain weather phenomena, such as lightning and windstorms. How many of you had ever considered that Satan would have that kind of power? He does. Only when it's given, though. But he does. What I'm telling you is that this is not God striking Job's shepherds and sheep with lightning. This is Satan doing that. And we'll read about him stirring up a pretty heavy windstorm a little later, too. Satan has the ability to do this when he is permitted to do it. He doesn't always have control of the weather. But anytime he does, it's somehow going to serve God's broader purposes. We know that Scripture says over and over that God controls the weather. But he might give some of that ability to Satan at times, and he certainly did here. Now, before this second messenger could finish his terrible report and before Job could respond or say a single word, what happens? There's a repetition. Another messenger arrives and interrupts the second guy while he's still talking. Man, your sheep, they got turned into little popcorn. 
And then this guy shows up. We can move to verse 17. While he was yet speaking, that's the second guy, there came another and said, The Chaldeans formed three groups and made a raid on the camels and took them and struck down the servants with the sword, or with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. Isn't that funny how there's always one person preserved to come and tell? That's by design, by the way, because Job has to get the news in sequence. Again, this third messenger interrupts the second. This is the repetition of the text. One interrupts the other. And he tells Job that the Chaldeans came in three groups and rustled all his camels this time, took his camels and struck down all his camel keepers, but one actually had to look up the name or title of someone who takes care of camels. They're literally called camel keepers. I thought, can we come up with something a little more flashy than that? But that's what they're called. Yeah. The Chaldeans were a fierce, very fierce, semi-nomadic group who eventually migrated into southern Mesopotamia where they aided in the formation of the Babylonian Empire. Maybe some of you have heard of that empire. It was a pretty powerful empire. Chaldeans may have originated in Ur, you are, the birthplace of Abraham since they are identified with that city. In Genesis 11, chapter 11, verse 31, we are told that Abraham and his family went out from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. So it seems like Ur may have been a city of these Chaldean people, although they were in some sense semi-nomadic. Maybe this Abraham situation here that we're reading about happened quite a bit after Job, like between Babel and uh, you know, Abraham and, and Babel, Job happened in between there somehow. And these Chaldeans settled down and formed this city later on. We don't know exact timeline here, but they were from this place called Ur, or they formed Ur. They are mentioned, the Chaldeans, about 78 times in the ESV. An interesting place to read about the Chaldeans would be in Daniel chapter 2, where they are described as astrologers among Babylon's wise men. And you need to understand that back then astrology is not, you know, um, it's not Cleo with her tarot cards. If any of you can go back to that time and remember her, call me now, remember her on TV. For $29.95 you could find out your future. Astrologers back in these days were uh, astronomers. They just studied the stars. But there wasn't a lot of superstition in it. So these guys were... Um, astronomers, astrologers, part of Babylon's wise men. And uh, this group of Chaldeans that were part of this group, they were almost put to death by Nebuchadnezzar when they failed to interpret a prophetic dream that he had. But Daniel actually saved them and many other wise men when he gave the correct interpretation. That's uh, Daniel 2. Very, very fascinating passage of Scripture. That's the Chaldeans are talked about there quite a bit. In our text, these Chaldeans formed three groups before raiding Job's camels. What does this tell us? It tells us that this was a premeditated planned attack. It tells us that they were well organized, right? They broke up into three groups and said, we're going to raid the camels and the camel keepers. This group, this group, this group, you know, red, blue, green. Green team, go! They were literally like Navy SEAL-esque organized. And Ash 
calls it a deliberate, premeditated strategy of criminal aggression. It's a good description. In a matter of minutes here, the remaining third of Job's prosperity was removed. He lost 3,000 camels and many trusted, hardworking camel keepers. All of his prosperity was now gone. I said a couple of weeks ago, but according to today's livestock prices, he would have lost $17.5 million in probably a half hour, if that. The greatest of all the people of the East was now a pauper. Now a pauper. He was a poor man now. I'd like to add that we cannot put a price on his many, many, many servants who were slaves. You know, we tend to focus on the animals and the financial losses of all the livestock being taken, but how about all these wonderful men and women who worked for him? You know, we're not reading an allegory. We're not reading a fairy tale here. This isn't an English fairy tale. These were, this is real. This is a real historical event. These were real, literal men and women, servants who were killed. Real human beings, real people, image bearers. And they were slaughtered like animals while the actual animals were carried away and cared for. Man. You know, the Sabians and the Chaldeans were like people today, aren't they? those who value animal lives over human lives. Now, there are about 2,350 abortions performed throughout the U.S. every single day. Nobody bats an eye, but folks lose their minds when a single, a single just one, just one eaglet is threatened. That should make you mad. This is Romans 1 level depravity. If you think that it's only, you know, hey, it's just getting worse and worse and worse. It was just as bad in Job's day. When you have human beings that are working and being murdered and slaughtered like animals while the animals are taken and preserved. It's been this way since the fall, folks. I don't know why the loss of... Or that particular detail here, the loss of all these servants really got me. Maybe it's... Just the, the sheer lack of value of human life that's represented in the text, which is so reflected in our day. It's just sad. It is Romans 1 depravity. For poor Job, the worst was yet to come. <laughs> and how can it get any worse? 17 and a half million, God, all your wealth, all your prosperity. Before the third messenger could finish his terrible report, I think at this point Job's saying, no more. And before Job could literally respond or say a word, a fourth messenger arrives. I would have been like, no. We can move to 18 and 19. While the third messenger was yet speaking, there came another and said, Ah, your sons, 
and daughters who were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And behold, a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house, and it fell upon the four young people, and they are dead. And I alone have escaped to tell you. I mean, if that doesn't tear your heart out, I don't know what will. See, even the baby recognizes it. <laughs> so, as repeated over and over, the fourth and final messenger interrupts the third one, right? That's the repetition. That's the poetry of Job, by the way. And he tells Job that while his sons and daughters were celebrating in the oldest son's house, a powerful windstorm swept across the wilderness and struck the house, which fell on them and killed them. This great wind was a shirako. That's what it was called. These great winds that, that formed in, in the dry region, in the desert region, over there, they're called shirakos. We have them here, the Santa Ana winds, which don't seem to be all that powerful compared to what struck this house here. But this is a Scirocco, a powerful hot wind that forms in the desert, like the Santa Ana winds of Southern California. Now, Job's family was wealthy, right, prior to this, which means what? It means that his children's homes were well-built and durable. These weren't shanties. This was not a shanty. This was not a shack. This was a well-built home. This family had money. But this shirako was so powerful that it literally blew the load-bearing columns right off their foundation, which caused the entire house to implode. Some of you are in building, and, and you understand the difference between a regular wall and a load-bearing wall and these sorts of things. And these were load-bearing columns or pillars that were smacked right off their foundation by this wind. That's pretty incredible when you consider the 170, 180 mile an hour hurricanes that we have in the Florida area up through the panhandle that don't knock out the load-bearing parts of these homes. They got the rest of the house, but the load-bearing parts are still up. In this scenario, this wind was so powerful it blew the load-bearing stuff right over. That's how powerful this wind is. Job's children were instantly crushed to death by the weight of the roof, which also indicates that this home had multiple stories like other prominent homes in antiquity. A single-story home with a simple thatch roof would not have been heavy enough to crush and kill like this. This was probably tri-level. And a lot of times they had the the bathing and stuff up on the roofs. I don't understand that. Maybe it's because they figured they were up out of sight and they could bathe up on the roof. I mean, you think of David and Bathsheba. He's looking down on all the roofs. He sees a woman bathing on the, on the roof. That's just bizarre to me, but that's how they rolled back then. This was a, a big, nice, well-built, strong home. Multiple levels, big and heavy And it was toppled like nothing, like that. This place would have been earthquake-proof. 
I'm thinking the servant who survived must have been outside fetching more wine or something else when the Scirocco struck the house. And he was probably blown right off of his feet. And when he sat up, he immediately saw the devastation. He was probably blown several, several yards, maybe 20, 30 yards away from the house. Who knows? But when he comes to his, gets back up on his feet or he looks at the house, he sees total and absolute devastation. And then he obviously, because he describes in detail what's going on here, he runs over to the devastation and begins to search through the rubble for survivors. Having flashbacks again of 9-11. They're digging through the rubble of those trade centers. And what this servant found was just horrifying the mangled, lifeless bodies of Job's ten children strewn beneath several tons of debris. In a matter of minutes, Job's posterity was removed. Seven sons, three daughters, gone. I've ministered to grieving parents, and they say that losing a child is the worst thing they've ever experienced. Imagine having 10 children and losing all of them. How do you bear that? We would say, well, God could help us bear it, and there's a lot of truth to that, but that'd be tough. That'd be tough. Satan successfully removed Job's prosperity and posterity in just a matter of minutes. This was Job's 9-11. And it was now time for the test. Job's response will determine who is right. If he curses God, Satan is right. Job's Piety was driven by mere convenience, and people worship God only because He gives them things. But if Job continues to worship, Satan isn't right. God is right. Job's piety is driven by conscience, real love, and people can and do worship God for who He is, not just because He gives them things. And I'll tell you, at this point in the narrative, when this was playing out, all of heaven and hell had their eyes fixed on every angel, every demon, had their eyes fixed on Job to see how he would respond. Multitudes of angels, multitudes of demons, Satan himself, I don't think God was looking at all. <laughs> he was over here like... He didn't have to look at this. He knew the outcome. Every angel, every demon had their eyes fixed on Job. How would he respond? Would he curse God? Or would he worship God? Would he continue to worship God? Let's look at his five-fold response in the next line, right? Verse 20. There's lots of, this thing is pregnant with detail. Five actions. Number one, Job arose. 
That's verse 20a. He arose. Job was probably standing when the first servant arrived, but then took a seat when this servant began to share his terrible news about the Sabians. When we are about to share difficult information with a loved one or a close friend, we sometimes begin by saying, you might want to sit down before I tell you this. Why do we do that? Because we want to prevent them from falling over after they hear the news, bumping their noggin, knocking their pumpkin. And that may have been something that happened here. Some news is just so shocking it will literally cause the hearer to faint and fall down or drop like a sack of potatoes. I am very, very strong, so I can suck up the bad news. No, I'm kidding. I've never fainted, though. Has anyone in here ever fainted when they heard bad news? It can happen. Have you ever known anyone who literally had a stroke or heart attack when they heard bad news? This happens. I'm thinking Job is standing and then takes a seat and starts getting the news, right? It was so incredibly shocking. I think lesser men or women would have had a heart attack and maybe dropped dead after hearing the first report. Job was seated, which kept him safe in a sense from falling and hitting his head. But after this fourth messenger gave his report, what does he do? He arose. He stood to his feet. Now he's standing. Why? So that he could, number two, Job tore his robe, verse 20b. He tore his robe. The robe is the outer garment. It's the last thing a person has on. They were worn by people of distinction, like the high priest who came later, Saul and Jonathan, King David. Job's three friends actually wore robes, chapter 2, verse 12. Robes were expensive. Not everyone had one. And these aren't bathrobes. This is part of your adornment, part of your wardrobe. But only people of, of means had them. They were expensive. The tearing of one's robe symbolized the emotional duress that person is experiencing. Job's heart was torn when he heard about his children. He stood up and tore his robe to reflect his torn heart. That's the symbolism. The tearing of the robe visually expresses deep sorrow, deep emotional pain. My heart had been torn in two. They ripped the robe. It symbolizes that. Number three, Job shaved his head. Verse 20c, shaved his head. This is another sign of Job's deep, deep grief. People in his day shaved their heads when mourning or grieving the loss of someone but they did it to, um, in a way to identify with the dead, being that once a person dies, the hair falls out. The shaving of one's head during mourning was later condemned in the Mosaic Law, Leviticus 21, verses 4 and 5. Many pagan religions, such as Hinduism, still actually practice this. When a loved one dies, they, all of the super pious Hindus shave their heads. Job 
was not acting in deliberate disobedience by shaving his head here because it was forbidden in the Mosaic law later. He was simply mimicking a cultural mourning ritual, even though it was pagan. If Job had lived during the time of Moses, he would have obeyed God's law because he was a blameless and upright man. Basically, what you see Job doing here by shaving his head is he's just following the cultural prompts in mourning, even though it was pagan. He didn't understand that. If he'd have known the law, which came later, he would have obeyed. But he did shave his head nonetheless. Number four, Job fell on the ground. This is verse 20D. This is not fainting. He did not faint. This is prostration. This is a deliberate bowing down. It is a, a falling on your face on the ground. I would do it, but I'm too old to get back up. When a person came into the presence of a king or some other dignitary, they would fall prostrate or bow down before them. In the future, every knee will bow. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father, right? Philippians 2, 10 and 11. Can we make that tomorrow, Lord? Then I don't have to wear this. What is prostration, the falling down to the ground, the bowing? What does that signify? It signifies, it symbolizes humility and submission, primarily submission. Job is, is humbling himself by bowing down, and he is submitting. The person who bows is, in effect, saying, I humbly submit to you. Now, the great question is, who was Job bowing down to here? Who was he submitting to? The four messengers? No. No. Number five, Job worshiped. Verse 20e, Job bowed down. He, he fell on the ground. He fell prostrate. He bowed down to the ground in humble adoration and submission in worship to God. Bowing was actually part of his worship. And we just sing and sing and sing, and sometimes if we're really daring, we'll put our hands up in the air. We're Baptists, we just, just kidding. He's like, it's true. <laughs> but this is an act of worship, to humbly bow and submit. You are, you are, in a sense, placing yourself beneath the feet of God. That's what he's doing. That's what he's done through the bowing. It's part of his worship. And how did the ancients worship God while prostrate while on their face, while bowed down. How did they do it? They would praise His holy name. First Chronicles 29, verse 20. I believe that's what Job was doing here. He fell on his face, humbly submitting to God in worship, and he was praising God's holy name. Yahweh! Yahweh! Lord, which appears 25 times in his book. 
He also made a very logical and worshipful poetic statement in the next line. In verse 21, and while he's prostrate down on his knees, worshiping God and praising the name of Yahweh, Lord, he, is, he says this, he says, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. This is just pure poetry. And it reveals something about Job that he understood a basic, fundamental truth about life. When we enter this world, we are naked and without personal possessions. And when we exit this world, we are naked and without personal possessions. Our entrance and our exit are the same. Solomon expressed the same truth in Ecclesiastes 5.15 where he wrote, We all come to the end of our lives as naked and empty-handed as on the day we were born. We can't take riches with us. Those who boast, and I've seen it on bumper stickers here and there, he who dies with the most toys wins are but ignorant fools who do not understand the way things work. People have been buried in their sports cars and buried in plexiglass, seated upon their Harleys in an effort to take these possessions with them. There are no McHenrys to cruise in heaven or hell. Job seems to have maybe figured out that he too was about to die since everything he owned had been everything he owned and loved had been stripped away he was probably kind of figuring in his mind well i entered with nothing and now i have nothing i suppose my own exit is near there's a bit of fatalism here in his poetry i can assure you that if i had gone through something like this i would have wanted to die right then And the second half of verse 21 is just sublime. It's just beautiful. Job acknowledges that God is his sole provider and that God has the sovereign right to remove anything and everything from Job's life whenever he chooses. This is part of God being God. God has the right to give. We love that, don't we? We love that one. God has the right to give, and boy, does He ever give. He is a good God. He gives, doesn't He? And we love that. We love that reality. We love that. But God also has the right to take away. That one we love not too much. We want God to give, 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 but we do not want God to take away. Why? It's because we have idolatrous hearts. We tend to ascribe our highest feelings and highest devotion to stuff and to others when God alone is worthy of such devotion. If we don't 
want God to take things away from us. It shows that we have a sinful attachment to the things. If we're not okay with them taken away, we know what our idols are. We are prone in this fallen human nature. Even though we've been regenerated and made new, we are still prone to worship the creation rather than the creator. Romans 1.25. It's part of our Adamic nature. We need to learn from righteous Job here. He was not an idolater. When God gave Job blessed the name of the Lord. And when God took away, Job did what? Blessed the name of the Lord. That is the right Christian attitude. To bless when you are given, to bless when it is taken. I would say that's the linchpin of Christianity. We bless God whether we're getting or not. An idolater blesses God only when God gives gifts. He proves his idolatry, his unholy affection for his stuff through his unwillingness to bless God when he loses his stuff. How could you take her from me? You're an idolater. How could you take him? You're an idolater. How could you take our home that you gave? Idolatry. The truly pious, true believer, the true Christian says, Blessed be the name of the Lord. What do we sing before the sermon? Blessed be the name of the Lord, whether you're getting or it's taken. That's to be our disposition, our attitude at all times. And that is what Job does here in response to, to the worst personal catastrophe I think I've ever read about in my whole life. Have you ever read any personal tragedy greater than this anywhere? That a man of, of substantial wealth loses all of his wealth, everything, and loses all his children within a half hour. Where have you read of greater loss? Personal loss with a single individual. Where have you read about it? And what is his response? Blessed be the name of the Lord. We need to learn from this guy. We need to learn from this guy. We can move to 22. And this is it, man. This is it. This, this is... In combination with what we just read, this is, this is what heaven and, and hell are tuned into. This is what they're looking for here. And all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Okay? Totality here, the results were in. The test was complete. Job did not do what Satan said he would do. He did not curse God to his face after losing everything. Instead, he bowed down and worshiped God. He didn't curse God. He blessed the name of the Lord. He did the opposite. 
He didn't. In this added detail in 22, he did not sin or charge God with wrongdoing. Job didn't even say, what are you doing to my life? He didn't say anything like that. Job passed the test. Satan lost. Most importantly, God proved through his servant, Job, that he is worthy to be worshipped for who he is, and his word was vindicated, and his glory magnified. 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 This is astounding, what you're reading. It's just incredible. And I'm convinced that it was God's Spirit working in and through Job because Job, like any of us, without the Spirit of God working, he does what Satan says. He curses. In the 1870s, similar losses befell a wealthy attorney named Horatio Spafford. Some of you know who I'm talking about. 1871, he lost nearly all of his wealth when the Chicago fire destroyed all the real estate he owned. A couple of years later, in 1873, he lost four daughters when the ship they were on was struck by another ship and sank in the English Channel. His wife survived that sinking, but his four daughters drowned. Sounds kind of like Job. A lot later. How did he respond? Did he curse God? Did he worship God? He worshiped God. In the midst of great sorrow and bitter anguish, he penned one of the greatest hymns of all time, It Is Well With My Soul. That was his way of saying, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Believers must respond as Job and Horatio Spafford did in the dark hours by worshiping God. Those circumstances change often from bad to worse. God remains the same, eternally unchanging, always, always, always worthy of our worship, always. Amen?